there are some really very disturbing clairvoyant images in Surf's Up that seem to say, watch out, this is not gonna last. There were so many aspects of the Smile album and the elements and, and all the things that made up the record that he just, uh, he had to, to just let it go. Because it came at a time when Brian was just really finding it difficult to stay focused. He wasn't getting any enjoyment out of it. It wasn't fulfilling him, it was painful. So uh, we made Smiley smile instead. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Salon Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee, and I hope wherever you are, you're doing as well as can be expected. Thank you very much for spending part of your day with me. We are going to continue discussing and decluttering the smile sessions. And we've also got some great questions from you guys today that I hope we can answer. And by we, I mean Will and John, of course. <laughs> but first up, some emails. This is from Freddie over at Mixology. Hi Wyatt, you recently asked for smile stories, and while I wasn't initially stirred, I suddenly felt intensely compelled to write in when I remembered just what I went through in the 2011 period. You see, in what I believe was late 2010, I was still a blossoming Beach Boys fan. Then in February, an article was published in which Al Jardine accidentally let it out the bag that smile would see the light of day, and for a 14-year-old who wasn't deeply in the world of Beach Boys, I was bizarrely overwhelmingly excited and started descending into a spiral that lasted the entirety of the year. Shortly after this, I downloaded Burnt to Disc and made inlays for the purple chick construction of Smile and played it while setting up for band rehearsals on the portable CD player in my mum's barn. I was utterly fascinated by what I heard, but the dive didn't completely happen yet. Sometime after Record Store Day 2011, my dad and I were in Amsterdam, and they thankfully had the 10-inch release of Good Vibrations and Heroes and Villains, one of the most beautiful pieces in my collection to this day. I love that gold navy blue artwork. And then the little smile coming soon insert didn't help quell my eagerness at all. It was after this trip that I descended into madness. Over the summer, I got the Good Vibrations box and consumed the smile bits on disc 2 religiously. I found the Sea of Tunes sets online and sunk into that. And worst of all, I was downloading fan mixes of the album almost daily. I had 35 different constructions on my hard drive at one point. Finally, the box set is announced. I lose my mind. I watched the leaked trailer, which had a clip of Stereo Good Vibrations outro with vocals in it, which was later removed, and then spent the next few months constantly on the Smiley Smile message board, absorbing every clip and scrap of info that leaked. The BBC Radio 2 show that had a clip of the 1967 Serps Up was definitely a big moment. The best part? My dad was friends with the guys that ran the CD shop just down from his store in Seven Oaks. And as such, I was able to get the box set the day it arrived in store, the Wednesday before the Monday release date. This was before anyone else on the Smiley Smile board, so naturally, the 15-year-old me teased everyone with a photo and sent them crazy. And then he came home with the box, and I first played the Heroes and Villains 45, and then the LP, and then the first session CD before bed. I was in heaven, pure, unadulterated heaven. And hearing those extra vocals in the Child is Father of the Man chorus, a feeling I have never felt since. All the best. 
Freddie French Pounce. Well, thanks for sharing that, Fred. I really love that. And uh, I did not know that you were such a nerd back in the day. I mean, I know you are now, but, you know. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, next up, we have an email from Claire. Hi, guys. I'm loving the podcast. All the way from Manchester, UK. I discovered you at the perfect time, just over a year into my Beach Boys odyssey. How did I discover the Beach Boys? Well, I guess like everyone, they've been omnipresent in my life. God Only Knows has always been one of my very favorite songs. I remember being really young, maybe five or six, and just absolutely adoring it. Even as a child, I had to stop and listen when it came on the radio. I've never been a love songs kind of girl, but God Only Knows and I'm Not In Love by 10CC are songs I've loved for as far as my memory goes back. I now know how incredibly complex both songs were to record, and it's cool this effort wasn't wasted on my young ears. In my teens, I had a Beach Boys Greatest Hits tape, which I loved and felt totally appropriate as I lived on the Atlantic coast of Southwest England, in a town where surfing was and is the number one pastime. We lived a real beach life, despite the weather sucking for eight months of the year. Summers were just like the songs, or so it seemed. I should add, Kokomo was a hit around this time, and I was old enough to know this wasn't in keeping with the little I knew about their legacy. My musical interests had always been wide and varied, but for some reason, although I'd always been very aware of Pet Sounds and its influence, I'd never heard it in its entirety. Anyway, this is where my Beach Boys journey really starts. Fast forward to autumn 2018, and I'm lost in Google during an idle moment at work. I typed in, did the Beach Boys actually surf? I don't remember what led me there, but I arrived at a Dennis Wilson photo. Wow, this was not one of the bearded guys I remember from the 80s. The Beach Boys had one of these? This guy was beautiful, cool, and had an interesting if heartbreaking story. I read and read and read about Dennis, completely fascinated. The real Beach Boy on the BBC really got me started. The instrumental of Be With Me features heavily in the documentary, which I love. This led to reading in depth about the band and devouring all the documentaries and YouTube stuff I could, utterly falling in love with the music along the way. A few months into my Beach Boys journey, and after listening to a handful of your podcasts, starting with the Pet Sounds episodes, of course, I dived headlong into the album's preceding Pet Sounds. I love that evolution. As a novice, I was pleased to hear you guys love some of the same stuff I do. I just discovered Let Him Run Wild at the time. How had I missed this my whole life? I'm listening to the Surfer Girl episode as I write. I have some serious catching up to do. But the coronavirus lockdown we are currently experiencing should help with that. At this point, I'm pretty well versed in the story of the band, I've poured over every detail and I'm still researching, but it's taking longer to get through the music. You really are my guide through this. So thanks for the podcast. It's been the perfect thing at the perfect time, and I really appreciate the passion, effort, knowledge, and insight that you bring to each episode. After each one, I go off and discover new songs. It's great to have some direction on what seems like an endless journey. Thanks for everything, seriously. Sail on, Claire. Thank you so much. That is so, so nice to hear. I definitely was hoping that people would discover this podcast in an organic way through whichever album they were really interested in or song or period. They could start there and then maybe work their way backwards or forwards. Um, it's been really fun working my way through this stuff, and I really appreciate you guys listening and joining me, and uh, there's a lot more to come. Hey, title. Father, Father and child, take one. Father is child. I think it's child, it's father. Father, <laughs> take one. 
October 7th, 1966. We're at Western Studios again in Hollywood, California. There was some initial confusion over the title, even from Brian. No matter, the goal was to lay down the backing track, and they began today with the chorus. It's a bouncy and dark groove led by Carol Kay on the electric bass and Bill Pittman on the fuzz guitar. If this figure seems familiar, it's because Brian would return to it several times in the coming months and years. They are joined by Jimmy Bond on the upright bass and Frank Cap on the vibes. Brian's leading the band through the changes from the grand piano while Hal Blaine keeps rhythm behind the kit. Initially, Jimmy Bond is trying an Arco bass part, but after the early takes, Brian told him just to double carol. Carl was trying to juggle a tambourine and castanet for a while before Brian told him to give it up and let Hal overdub the tambourine later. Just do the, just do the maraca thing. Here we go. After finally getting to the master take, one overdub was added, featuring Brian on a detuned tack piano, Bill Pittman doubling his guitar part an octave lower, and Hal adding that tambourine. Seemingly before Brian was truly satisfied, they moved into the verse section. Hal switches to timpani mallets for this short but sweet jazzy feel that features a walking bass line and some syncopated vibes. It seems Brian was already losing interest in what they did that day, and this verse section was totally scrapped. They went through an insane 38 takes of the chorus and 39 of the verse. So let's bring in my homies here, Will and John. What's up, guys? How are you? Hey. Good. Yeah, thanks for joining me. Thanks for working on this stuff, as always. Um, This is a fun one. So what happened to this first verse section that we hear here? It's really cool, and I wonder if there was ever like a melody written for it or anything. Yeah, I think he must have had a melody at the time, but um, he was just working way, way too fast, and he just, four days later, just completely scrapped it and rewrote the song, so just something wasn't working for him, I guess. Yeah, and I think this is something we can get into with the whole lyrical thing, but I kind of get the sense that he probably would have written a melody when he was doing the chords, but I don't think he would have had lyrics if he was going to... You know, he scrapped it so fast and then did a completely different verse thing. They went in a pretty different direction. Yeah, I love this version. It's so just... Yeah, I do too. Um, I I haven't heard it in a while until we started going through this. I've never really been able to place that. I, I get it in my head every now and then. I'm like, <laughs> what, is that little, what is that little walking line that I keep hearing in my head, you know? And it's it's this unused verse of, of child, so... Yeah, I think it's really cool. I think that he maybe thought that it was just too similar to the chorus because mm. when he redid the track, the verse has a completely different feel. Um, it's totally different rhythm. So I think that he just decided that he wanted a song that switched between two different moods rather than staying too similar the whole way through. I 
had been wondering, did they actually overdub anything here? And it turns out on the 2011 mix, you just can't really hear it, but on the bootleg, um, it's it's the same. It sounds like the same detuned tap piano thing that's on Good Vibrations. Um, the one that I think um, Bruce Botnick had at Sunset Sound that they borrowed every now and again. It sounds like that piano, which is kind of interesting. I never heard that until the other day. So only four days later, they decided to start fresh with this new verse and a new bridge section. It's basically the same group of musicians, but both percussionists are gone. Bill Pittman's guitar riff has now moved to the fuzz Dano bass. And then Jimmy Bond on the upright plays a new jagged bow figure on a single note, while Carol's part remains the same. Yeah, it's gonna sound great. It'll be beautiful, man. What do we call this, part one again or what? Yeah, we're gonna just, now let's go over the pattern of the chorus. It's like this, it's, it's eight bars. Carl is now in the booth helping produce along with Chuck Britz, while Brian focused on playing the tack piano and leading the takes. And of course now we have Ollie Mitchell on the trumpet with Harmon Mute. Here's Steve Bonilla. Of course, I love that muted trumpet part in the chorus that quotes Charlie Barnett's Cherokee. <laughs> In the earlier takes, he's um, he's got his harmon mute, which is something that you kind of pull in and out of the trumpet to get that that wah wah sound. Um, and Brian's telling him that he wants it to sound like a baby. And uh, later on, he suggests a different sound because Brian didn't really seem satisfied with it by pushing this this stem piece that's in the mute uh, further into the trumpet. And that's when Brian gets excited and he said, "That's our baby." So there's no percussionist at the session. So did Brian play the percussion overdubs on this? We think so. Yeah, so th there's a snare part, which is just that, that classic rhythm that he's basing this whole thing around. And then there's mm -hmm. sleigh bells as well. And if you listen to the last time the snare plays that pattern, it changes it up, and I'm pretty sure that's a mistake, but it sounds good enough. Um, so I actually do think that's Brian, because he's very capable of playing that and it's not the whole kit it's just a snare drum yeah and carl played um hand percussion a lot of the time as well he did um in the last child session obviously yeah. he was doing the, the tambourine and the casting mm -hmm. and then on wind chimes he did the wood blocks as well so i think it probably would be that way around um Colin. but who knows it could have been either because carl did play drums as well in the studio 
And the, the bass lines as well, I think, is really cool. The fact that he's got three different... I, ca- I can't think of another time where Brian had three different bass parts all doing completely different things. Yeah, um, and there's really not much else besides the bass. It's just the piano and the trumpet. <laughs> so the verse is now much slower, has this Western feel, as opposed to the previous more jazzy iteration. Carl and Bill Pittman are on the liquidy electric guitars with the rich tremolo and tape delay, and both basses play unison half notes while Brian keeps time on the tack piano. Another little thing that pops out at me is the which in eighth notes, which it really sort of almost wants you to subliminally think of California girls, a different Western feel, you know, sort of moody and sort of just loping into town. Then there's this new sparse bridge section, apparently tackled in just one take where Ollie moves to flugelhorn for a brief solo over a backing of just Brian's tack piano and the basses. There's this strange quote from an interview in, I think it would have been November 66, because they were in England at the time. And some journalist says that um, they got a sneak preview of one of the tracks uh, the other night when Dennis played me a piano version of one track, Child of the Man, um, a cowboy song, and then gave me the throwaway line of the year. And this is the prayer I'm working on for it. Two things. Um, It called Child of the Man. That's what it says the title is, a cowboy song. And it also says that Dennis is working on a prayer for it. I have no idea what the prayer thing's about, but I kind of... Yeah, that is really strange. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was just cabin essence, uh, you know, because Dennis was supposed to sing that apparently, and they've got the name of the song um, wrong. Or if Charles Father and Man had something to do with the kind of Western ideas, I have no idea. But listening to... I was going to say, listening to that second version, you kind of hear that almost. It's, you know, the tack piano and the sort of the the Harmon mute trumpet thing kind of sounds a bit like an Ennio Morricone um, harmonica um, harmonica sort of thing. There's kind of a sort of Western-y thing to it that you don't hear in the first version it's but this one's more in line with the kind of americana side of the small um so. yeah and that that first version is really bouncy and this the second version the verse and the bridge here are really menacing like yeah. it almost sounds like horror movie music to me it's really dark so brian made basically a rough cut of the track on this day correct yeah so he made an edit with the with the verse the chorus and the bridge and everything and they almost released this on the Smile Sessions, but they took it off in favor of um, Teeter Tarter Love. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> but since then, they they released it on uh, Wake the World to Friends Sessions. So it's the last track on there. That's Brian Wilson's mono yeah. edit of this uh, this backing yeah. track. And it was supposed to be on Made in California as well, and then I presume they got chopped off for Pom Pom Playgirl oh, vocal session highlights. Um, <laughs> and then after that, I was yeah. really confused about that when that showed up on that yeah, Wake it's, the World. It's yeah, it's because of the whole Little Bird Association. They finally got an excuse to put it out. Yeah, I think basically they've just been trying to release that for a long yeah. time. But it's yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. I mean, it's not like Do You Like Worms, which we'll you know we'll get to, um, where Brian edited the whole track and then put vocals over it that way. Same with Good Vibrations. This was a whole edit that he didn't record over it. He recorded over the individual section um, sections, so he could kind of copy and paste them. But yeah, so this is in 1966, and he has a full structure for the song. It's kind of repetitive, but it's you know it's a properly fleshed out song. It goes chorus, verse, chorus, verse, 
chorus bridge and then a half chorus that starts off from halfway through when the sleigh bells come in and then it's got a full ending and it's about three minutes long um so yeah it's kind of you had a full plan for how this was going to go yeah those verse and bridge sections um for sure had a melody written at the time and it's really sad that we don't get to hear that because the backing track sounds so cool i have a pet theory that the melody for the bridge could have been the bridge of little birds <laughs> i mean i've played that to you before <laughs> i don't know who knows yeah 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 <laughs> but i like singing mm. i like humming that to myself over it it kind of works yeah it's sad this song makes me sad All right, so the first set of vocals were done a day later at Columbia. We have a large harmony stack by all six singing Oz underneath the five-part chant arrangement with everyone but Dennis. Why'd they leave Dennis out? I don't know. <laughs> they do that a lot. <laughs> he maybe he might have had something. Else the other one as well. Both both sets of vocals have no Dennis. Was, was this intended on being on one of the choruses, or, or what happened to this? Yeah, this it's vocal weird part? because he, he recorded all these vocals and then made a mix of it, and then completely wiped them and redid the vocals. Mm-hmm. So, not sure if he was scrapping them or just going to use them for one part and then different vocals for the other chorus. The, yes, basically this was mixed to a mono mix, which was an edit of just the verse and the chorus. It wasn't a full edit. It was just a, you know, a miniature thing. Um, and that was from October 12th. And then the next session, which is when we think the the acetate chorus is from, which is they got, they found an old acetate with some different vocals and that became the second chorus of the 2011 version. We think that's December 2nd is when these were from. And uh, they kind of, you know, they got, they, it's strange, they completely got rid of the sort of big R's in the background um, and redid the vocal arrangement. And it's kind of similar, but it's much more, it's tighter rhythmically if you compare it. Like Carl and L's sort of like punctuation parts are much kind of like, you know, the, the tighter. Um, Bruce has got one of those as well. And then Brian's got a new sort of syncopated high part. And then Bruce has a full side apart it's basically a more fleshed out version of the uh, old one so you can tell it was kind of it feels like it was going to be a replacement for that early arrangement gotcha and then the last ones are um these will be from december 6th i think which is the same day uh, brian carl and mike did the grand coolie vocals in cabin essence it was just the three of them adding another layer of uh, a slightly different arrangement like a very sort of unfinished arrangement. It sounds like Brian, Carl, and, and Mike, and then Mike doing another bass vocal. And this is the one where Mark the Nets talked about how they heard um, some, you know, headphone bleed in the background, which is how they figured out some of the vocals for 2004. And I think what he's talking about there is hearing what we now have is um, the mono mix, you know, that original mono mix for the chorus. He heard some of that in in um, Carl's headphones or whatever. And that's how they figured out some stuff there. 
So yeah, so I think this was kind of an extra layer that was going to go on top of it. But then Brian subsequently went and deleted all the stuff before that. So this is all that's on the multitrack, these ones. And these were kind of mixed into the first chorus for the 2011 mix. Walk us through what they used and um, how they came to the, the final Smile Sessions mix. Sure. So this mix, unlike the, uh, the 2004 one or Brian's instrumental cut, starts with an intro section. We'll get to that later. <laughs> that little thing with the vocals. And then it goes to the instrumental piano bridge and then the first chorus you hear there is um, that first one we talked about. It has like the ah backing vocals. And then it also has that third layer of vocals mixed in from the multi-track. Yeah, so this is Brian's mono mix with, with some extra stuff on the top. the second chorus is the second layer of vocals and that was taken straight from an acetate so the quality kind of decreases you can tell um, but that's the, com- the completely different second arrangement of vocals There were no lyrics at this point, right? I mean, we think there must have been at least some melodic ideas, but the lyrics that showed up in 2004 were new, right? Completely new, yeah. Outside of just them saying, child, father of the man, a million times in the chorus, there weren't any lyrics. Sure, sure. There's a quote from Brian Wilson's autobiography that, let me try to find. He says, child is father of the man was about mental health and knowing yourself so you could do the right things in the world. It was based on something written by Carl Menninger, a psychiatrist who had interesting theories about mental health and mental illness and how people develop and when doctors should try to help and when they should keep their distance. No one could do them like Van Dyke, which meant that no one could do them at all. I tried, but they were too sophisticated. It's Yeah, this is a strange thing. It's kind of been attributed to Van Dyke because of a quote by him, but I think that's kind of been misconstrued. I think what it, what actually happened there is Brian wrote the song by himself, which is, you know, we know that from an early August interview that Brian already had it. But Van Dyke didn't do anything on this in 1966. It seems like his only contribution back then was um, telling Brian where the quote that he got the um, the title from actually came from, because Brian thought it was from Carl Menninger. And Van Dyke kind of referred him to the Wordsworth poem, which is where Child's Father of the Man, uh, My Heart Leaps Up by Wordsworth actually comes from. Um, and Van Dyke wasn't actually asked to write lyrics for this thing until 2003, November. So 
I don't know what Brian was planning to do then. I don't know if he was just planning on writing it himself and if he did have the lyrics or that he never recorded or if he was just kind of banking on eventually thinking of something. I don't really, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on with that one. But it seems like he never asked Van Dyke to write something for it, which is strange. Yeah, so I don't want to really uh, get too into the 2004 version, but oh, yeah, um, of course. we'll talk about that at some point. Um, it's just interesting to try and separate the two. I, I wish that they had completed it even, you know, for a, for another record, maybe in the in the late 60s. Yeah, I wish um, they just didn't do the chorus a million times and did anything sure. for the verse. <laughs> but I mean, it obviously became one of those songs that they recycled the ideas oh, yeah. into other places, right? So we'll get oh, into yeah. that as well. November 4th, 1966, at Western Studios. How about not hitting it, but kind of doing it with your hand? Shake it up a little. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Think of your wife. <laughs> Real nice, real good. Here we go. Enjoyed <laughs> We hear Frank Cap tossing around some car keys. He's trying to imitate jewelry per Brian's request. This literal use of percussion would set the stage for one of the most ambitious avant-garde pieces Brian would ever put to tape. Beautiful. Now it sounds like jewelry. Here we go. And now we're starting to really. That's beautiful. Here we go. Also, make sure that you're in the rhythm, too. Here we go. This was the first attempt at the first half of a song called Surf's Up. Carol Kay seems worried about something. Don't worry about how it stops. It's supposed to sort of stop itself. Hey, but don't worry about it, Carol. But I do worry. You mustn't. This is my buddy. I You mustn't worry. You mustn't. Okay, here we go. One would assume that she could question the fact that along with Jimmy Bond, her bass part is meandering around the chart on the and of two and four while hardly ever landing on the root of the chords or the downbeat of the bar, often seemingly one measure behind the rest of the arrangement. But of course, Brian knew what he was doing. Al Delory is on an old, slightly out-of-tune piano. He's joined by Al Casey with a descending muted guitar line and then Nick Palico with an accompanying glockenspiel line that falls not unlike a row of dominoes. There was an overdub of another piano playing some different chord voicings for a shimmery sound. It's joined in the outro by a brief tack piano figure that we can only assume was Brian. Three days later, Brian oversaw some brass overdubs with a rich wall of French horns in the choruses and some other interesting flourishes, including an actual muted trumpeter swan and David Duke on Wagner tuba.
so the first trumpet part is really interesting. It's just kind of outlining the chords. And then in the second verse, the French horns kind of play the same line, but it's all over the place. Um, you know the part I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. It sounds just like they're just playing random notes, but it was so carefully arranged and like rhythmically and in terms of the harmonies they're playing, it's just one of the most insane things that I think Brian has written. It sounds just like um, when they're talking through the, the French horns in that experiment he did, but you kind of turn that into a musical thing. It's really cool. I really love it. And my other favorite part of this is at the end, um, when he has the the Wagner tuba and one of the French horns play that, I don't even know how to describe it. It sounds like... Big swoops, like a war horn or something. The big swoops. Yeah, yeah, like a war horn. Um, I actually, there's a Van Dyke Park song where he did almost the exact same thing. Oh, really? Yeah, it was Palm Desert, the second song. Yes, that's the one I'm thinking of. That's, I've never um, thought about that before, but yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I only really noticed that yesterday. I was listening to Song Cycle again, but... Yeah, I mean, super interesting. I think it's really funny that he had a trumpet player just play one line and the rest of it's pretty much just the French horns and the yeah. and the Wagner tuba. It's such a, it's not like, I can't think of any other Brian thing that sounds like this. It's it's kind of a exact sort of halfway point between the smile sound and the pet sound sound almost. It's, right. I don't even really know how to describe yeah. it. I, I can't think of any other Brian arrangement that sounds like this thing. This is just a kind of random thing that I noticed, but... Every song that Brian had around this time that revolved around like a trumpet is used on side two of like d- both yeah, the 2004 did. album and and the 2011. You have Wonderful, Look, Child, and Surf's Up. Yeah, he didn't use brass instruments on, on any other smile thing, really. Apart from Tita Total Love, that's got yeah. a tube. Um, that could, that, that could have been in the, in the cycle of life suite. Um, so did they bring in a piano for this session alone? I mean, I think so. I, I mean, I'm kind of, I've listened to the, these things so much that I'm kind of familiar with the piano sounds they had at Western 3. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that upright piano that's used in all the early songs and a few things later on. It's normally the one that was taped with um, w- with tape on the strings for like God Only Knows and that sort of thing. It's the grand piano, which was a Yamaha um, that Brian really liked. And um, the tack piano, which is an old Wegman that they had at the back of a room. But this uh, piano on Surf's Up, it sounds like, you know, just kind of an old standard upright piano, but it doesn't sound like one of the pianos they normally had at Weston. So I'm wondering if they brought it in specifically from somewhere else. I, I don't really know. I um, think uh, another interesting little detail is when the f- when the uh, the second verse starts, the uh, the overdub piano doesn't come in for a measure. Oh, yeah, it's it um, lays out for a bit. Yeah, because I mean, they you can't like know exactly when they're going to come in because you can't see the conducting when you're overdubbing. But it's a nice little detail because you you get to hear just the one piano and then both of them come in. That, yeah, that that second piano part is such a cool. It's I, currently it makes it sort of I don't know. It's kind of a shimmery sound when you put them both together because they're both yeah. playing different. It's kind of slightly different chords, um, isn't it? I mean, same notes but different voicings. You know, they say which comes first, the music or the or the lyrics. On the in the case of Surfs Up, the music came first. Now, what does that mean to a lyricist? It means don't change a note because you don't want to insult the uh, composer. And also, if you take a note out of a out of a melody, 
the entire house of cards can fall. So that was rule one. One thing was absolutely essential, and that is not to change one note. So that became uh, a challenge to come up with syllables. You have to play by the rules. Rule one is don't violate the melody. December 15th, 1966. This is an excerpt from Goodbye Surfing, Hello God by Jules Siegel. There's also a spectacular peak, a song called Surf's Up, that Brian recorded for the first time in December in Columbia Records Studio A for a CBS TV pop music documentary. Earlier in the evening, the film crew had covered a Beach Boys vocal session that had gone very badly. Now at midnight, the Beach Boys had gone home, and Brian was sitting in the back of his car smoking a joint. In the dark car, he breathed heavily, his hands in his lap, eyes staring nowhere. All right, he said. Let's just sit here and see if we can get into something positive, but without any words. Let's just get into something quiet and positive on a nonverbal level. There was a long silence. Okay, let's go, he said, and then quickly, he was in the studio rehearsing, spotlighted in the center of the huge dark room, the cameramen moving around him invisibly outside the light. Let's do it, he announced, and the tape began to roll. Surf and take one. In the control room, no one moved. David Oppenheim, the TV producer, 40-ish, handsome, usually studiously detached and professional, lay on the floor, hands behind his head, eyes closed. For three minutes and 27 seconds, Wilson played with delicate intensity, speaking moodily through the piano. Then he was finished. Oppenheim, whose last documentary had been a study of Stravinsky, lay motionless. That's it, Wilson said, as the tape continued to whirl. The mood broke, as if awakening from heavy sleep. The people stirred and shook their heads. I'd like to hear that, Wilson said. As his music replayed, he sang the lyrics in a high, almost falsetto voice. The camera's on him every second. Hung velvet overtaken me Dim chandelier awaken me To a song dissolved in the dark Music hall, a costly bow. The music, hall, the music bow. all is lost the for now. Music all is lost for to now. a muted to trumpeter, a trumpeter swan. Columnated ruins, domino. Columnated ruins, domino. Canvas the town and brush the backdrop. Are you sleeping? His voice reached upward. The piano faltered a set of falling chords. In a slow series of impressionistic images, the song moved to its ending. Carriage across the fog to step to lamplight solitude. The laughs come hard in old of the wine the dim last toasting while I poured a do a choke of grief is that demo version that they released of 
Brian Wilson singing Surf's Up at the piano. I think it was on a Leonard Bernstein special or something. And it's like having a record of Mozart. Surf's Up, board a tidal wave. Come about hard and join the young and often spring you gave. I heard the word, wonderful we were not ready for how good a song we had written. And, and I got tears, he got tears, and my wife got tears, and you know, everybody was crying. On the last word, Brian's voice rose and fell like the ending of that prayer chorale he had played so many months before. That's really special, someone said. Special, that's right, said Wilson quietly. Van Dyke and I really kind of thought we had done something special when we finished that one. At home, the black acetate dub turned on his bedroom hi-fi set. Wilson tried to explain the words. It's a man at a concert, he said. All around him, there's this audience, playing their roles, dressed up in fancy clothes, looking through opera glasses, but so far away from the drama, from life. Back through the opera glass, you see the pit and the pendulum drawn. The music begins to take over. Columnated ruins domino. Empires, ideas, lives, institutions, everything is to fall, tumbling like dominoes. He begins to awaken to the music, sees the pretentiousness of everything, the music hall a costly bow. Then even the music is gone, turned into a trumpeter swan, into what the music really is. Canvas the town and brush the backdrop. He's off in his vision on a trip. Reality is gone. He's creating it like a dream. Dove-nested towers. Europe, a long time ago. The last come hard in Auld Lang Syne. The poor people in the cellar taverns trying to make themselves happy by singing. Then there's the parties, the drinking, trying to forget the wars, the battles at sea, while at port adieu or die. Ships in the harbor battling it out. A kind of Roman Empire thing. A choke of grief at his own sorrow and the emptiness of life because he can't even cry for the suffering in the world, for his own suffering. And then hope. Surf's up. Come about hard and join the once and often spring you gave. Go back to the kids, to the beach, to the childhood. I heard the word of God. Wonderful thing, the joy of enlightenment, of seeing God. And what is it? A children's song. And then there's the song itself, the song of children, the song of the universe rising and falling. And wave after wave, the song of God, hiding the love from us, but always letting us find it again, like a mother singing to her children. The record was over. Wilson went into the kitchen and squirted Ready Whip direct from the can into his mouth made himself a chocolate great shake, and ate a couple of candy bars. Of course, that's a very intellectual explanation, he said. But maybe sometimes you have to do an intellectual thing. If they don't get the words, they'll get the music. You can get hung up in words, you know. Maybe they work, I don't know. 
He fidgeted with a telescope. This thing is so bad, he complained. So Mickey Mouse. It just won't work smoothly. I was really freaked out on astronomy when I was a kid. Baseball, too. I guess I went through a lot of phases. A lot of changes, too. But you can really get into things through the stars. And swimming. A lot of swimming. It's physical. Really zen, right? The whole spiritual thing is very physical. Swimming really does it sometimes. He sprawled on the couch and continued in a very small voice. So that's what I'm doing. Spiritual music. Brian, Marilyn called as she came into the room, wearing a quilted bathrobe. Do you want me to get you anything, honey? I'm going to sleep. No, Mayor, he answered, rising to kiss his wife goodnight. You go on to bed. I want to work a while. Come on, kids, Marilyn yelled to the dogs as she padded off to bed. Time for bed, Louie. Banana, come on to bed. Good night, Brian. Good night, everybody. Wilson paced. He went to the piano and began to play. His guests moved toward the door. From the piano, his feet shuffling in the sand. He called a perfunctory goodbye and continued to play, a melody beginning to take shape. Outside, the piano spoke from the house. Brian Wilson's guests stood for a moment, listening. As they got into their car, the melancholy piano moaned. Here's one that's really out of sight from the fantabulous Beach Boys. We're sending this one out for Bob and Carol in Pomona. They've been going steady now for six months. Happy six months, kids. And dig good vibrations. The Beach Boys, out of sight. Something that I noticed was some of the um, some of the chord voicings he's playing are different to what he used on the on the first movement track. Like that very first chord on the first movement is a minor seven with a five in the bass. Um, but here he's just playing it with the with the one in the bass. So I'm wondering if that was a uh, part of why he wanted to completely redo it. Speaking of that, I mean, like, he's playing that sick bass riff on the left hand um, at the end, oh, which is yeah. one of the coolest left-hand parts that he's ever written, and that says a lot. Yeah, so, so the thing about this version is it wasn't... I don't think it would be accurate to call it a demo. I think at this point, Brian had probably scrapped the first movement track that he'd done before. It's strange, because he, he, you know, he, um, he did that first version, the first half, and then a couple of days later had a big horn overdub session for it and then just kind of let it sit there. You'd expect the next thing he'd do would be to record the second half of the song. This is really the first time in the Smile Sessions to that point where he kind of starts something and just leaves it hanging. Um, So you go over a month without anything done for Surf's Up. And then the next thing he does is this thing for the inside pop cameras, which I'm not sure he would have done without the inside pop cameras being there, but it does kind of come off to me as a whole new version. Like you scrap that earlier track that he's done and this is this is a replacement. It's his new kind of way of doing the song. Cause you know, it's not just, it's not just him performing for the cameras. It, he kind of did it while they were there, but he put the piano down first and then he went and just, you know, double tracked his vocal. And if you look at the inside pop reel notes that um, people found from David Oppenheim, there's parts about him kind of like going back and punching in different parts and mixing it down and wanting it to be done properly. So this is kind of, he wasn't treating it as just an improv studio performance. It was a proper version, just in a very sort right. of minimalist Brian and piano style. Um, mm. And there's the other thing as well that's kind of been said that the group tried to record vocals for Surf's Up beforehand of that session, which is when they did some stuff on Wonderful and Cabin Essence, but there isn't any evidence that they did anything like that. And I kind of, I, I think that Surf's Up was just on the name of that document because Brian was going to do his version afterwards because it was still the same session. You know, Brian was, then the other guys were paid something like three hours work time and then Brian was paid for 
an extra two hours beyond that uh, by himself. Um, but yeah, a certain particular author <laughs> kind of extrapolated that to say that Mike Love chose, chose that moment to argue about the surfs up lyrics in front of the cameras. Uh, that didn't happen because <laughs> we found the real notes. And yeah, yeah. so th- when when um, Jill Siegel describes the session going very badly, I don't think that had anything to do with surfs up and any disagreements. I think it's what David Oppenheim said in an interview somewhere else that oh, I can't remember where it was. But he kind of talked about how they wanted to see Brian, kind of the genius at work, conducting session. But really, it was just them doing these sort of little vocal snippets on, you know, on a 15 second piece. Them just going, who ran the iron horse? Who ran the iron horse? And stopping it. And they were all sat there perplexed, like, what is this? Oh, I um, so I think, that's, I think that's what he was talking about by a vocal session going very badly. They filmed it for the cameras, but I think it just wasn't really what they were looking for for the documentary. So on December 17th, they went and just filmed Brian singing the song live at piano at his house. And that's the one that made it into the documentary with David Oppenheim narrating, uh, not Leonard Bernstein. I don't, I mean, Brian and Van Dyke have both said that Leonard Bernstein have said something about Surf's Up. And so I, I don't know if he, you know, gave him a phone call at some point, but David Oppenheim's the one who came to visit and he's the one producing and narrating over Brian um, singing his song. That was a very, very, very well done Brendan piano vocal thing. Yeah, it was for a Leonard Bernstein show. Yeah, think, yeah, right. It? Of some but, CBS. But it gave me a chance to kind of like just feel alone with my piano, you know, and just sing, sing, sing the best I could, you know. Okay, so the, there is a mystery session for Surf's Up that is kind of legendary uh, that took place on January 23rd, 1967, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Western 3. Um, and this was a set, it was logged as a session for Surf's Up with a master number that hasn't been used on anywhere else. It was en- it was engineered by Chuck. The musicians for this were Carl, uh, Bill Pittman, who would have probably been on, you know, Dano bass or guitar or, I don't know, ukulele or something. Lyle Ritz, probably bass. Hal Blaine, percussion or drums. Then was Ron- uh, Roy Caton on trumpet, who also played in the first version of Surf's Up. And then Bill Green, Jim Horn and Jay Migliori, um, who had three woodwind players. Um, so, you know, saxophone or flutes or I don't know what they could have been on. And then that was followed up immediately afterwards by another session at Weston that was just logged as part one. That was the only title given. And it was noted as a sweetening session, which means an overdub session for something. Um, and the musicians, this is a this is where it gets really kind of strange. There were, there were um, five violins, three violas and two cellos for that. And two of the musicians, um, Ralph... Schaefer, I think, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and Jesse Ehrlich, the cellist on Good Vibrations, they were paid for a string arrangement, which is not something you ever see on a Brian session. And there were also a load of musicians, um, like five French horns, an English horn, and a harpist, um, who were paid for their services, but just sent home, they weren't used. And this thing wasn't around by 1971 when they were putting surfs up together again. So we don't know what happened here. It's really weird. It could have been just one of those moments where everybody is in the studio, maybe they're rehearsing, um, and Brian just says, nah, this isn't going to work. I'll see you guys later. Right, because it was, it was a short session, and a lot of people think that this was like some, like the second movement of the song. Like you have the first movement that was recorded, and then this would have been the last second section of the song. But I, yeah. I sort of agree with Will that I don't even think he was considering that first movement track when he did his piano version. And the part one title kind of makes me think that maybe he was just redoing the first part again. Maybe, was, yeah, maybe it was the full song. Maybe it was just the first part again. But given Brian's working habits at the time, considering he just, you know, he's remaking everything but worse, like wonderful with the Rock With Me Henry's that we'll get to. Um, 
that was the most recent thing he'd done at the time, and then he did Teeter Total Love two days later. So, you know, I don't have a lot of hopes that this would have been some lost masterpiece. Um, maybe it would have been, who knows, but this is this is a complete mystery, this session. But I don't think it was a lost second half of the song. I think it would have either been a remake of the whole thing or a remake of just the first section. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And it's yeah, that's a bummer. It's gone forever. And let's just assume that nothing was recorded. Yeah, it was, that's it helps me sleep. We're not missing anything, guys. Don't worry. <laughs> um, we'll make this. It'll make everybody feel better. Um, so there's one other version before we get to 1971 that I wanted to ask you guys about. It is a 1967 Brian Wilson piano demo of Sir Sut that has some slight variations in it. Yeah. So this one was done. At around the time of the Wild Honey sessions, um, when Brian had his detuned piano in his home studio. And this is um, very, very strange because we didn't know about this for a long time until it was just kind of found on a tape. Um, country Air. And it's thought it yeah, was on. on a Country Air reel. So, And then they included this on the Smile Box set, but no one really knows why he recorded it. He just... It was just him performing it in the studio. Singing live at the same time as he's playing. The diamond necklace play. Two, three, four. The diamond necklace play the pawn. Hand in hand, some drummed along. Oh, to a handsome man at baton. Upline class aristocracy. Back through the opera glass, you see the pit and the pendulum drum. Colonnaded ruins, dawn. And Carl is there, kind of giving feedback. And then also um, Jim Locker, the engineer, and Bill Harvison, I think. Yeah, the second engineer. So there were three other people in the room when he was doing this. Um, and it's a, just a very unique find. Like, just the fact that Brian was performing Surf's Up in the studio in late 67 is just, you know, it's kind of a game changer. And no one really knows why he wanted to record this. Like, was he doing it for Wild Honey? It sounds nothing like the rest of that album. Was he just doing it for fun? And there's a couple different chords in there too. Yeah, um, right. Um, yeah. So he starts in a he's playing it in a completely different key. Right. And then he adds like two different key changes halfway through the song. Um, which is yeah, kind of like how he changed the chords on that piano version. I think mm-hmm. he just didn't really know what to do with the song. He was constantly making these little changes. Um, I think maybe he thought that he wrote a song that was too good, that he wouldn't be able to do justice or something. Because every single time he did it, it was different. Like even when he performs it at his home for Inside Pop, he's playing, like the way he plays the chords under Are You Sleeping Brother John is different to how he did it in the studio two days earlier. So It's it's really interesting. I don't know, maybe they were considering it for Wild Honey at that point. Yeah, maybe know. maybe Brian was just doing it for himself. I mean, he kind of... He said that in an interview in 68, um, that he did a song with Van Dyke called Surf's Up, and it didn't come out on an album, but sometimes you just kind of do a song for yourself and keep it for yourself. So maybe that's what this was, I don't know. But it's really interesting in um, 
the extended sort of session intro on Sunshine Tomorrow that they released. Brian's talking about doing splices and stuff, and he's picking it up from certain parts of the song and talking about editing it together before he finally decides to just do the whole thing in one go. So you know, it's it's not just an off it's not just an off the cuff thing. If he was you know he slates some take numbers, he was talking about editing the whole thing together like he was doing with every other song at the time. So I just I don't I don't know what this was for. It's it's really interesting. This track was eventually completed for the Surf's Up album in 1971 at Brian's home studio. They originally tried to sync up Brian's piano and vocal from December 1966 with the backing track, but it just wasn't matching up. So they attempted to record a new track on top of this, and we haven't heard this, but apparently they scrapped it and just resorted to the original track yeah. and augmented it with vocals and some percussion and a Moog bass. We didn't want to give an illusion of something which did not exist. And uh, how to get over that, I think, was a big problem. I think we did it simply by just trying to encourage him to go into the studio more frequently. This culminated when uh, one day uh, I was going to Warner Brothers. I was driving to Warner Brothers, and I thought I'd stop at Brian's. I was going to have a meeting with Mo Austin. And I said, Brian, why don't you come with me see Mo? And he said, okay, I will. He said, the, the president of Warner Brothers, I don't know what I'm, I'm going to tell him. We started on the drive over to Burbank from Bel Air. And suddenly Brian said, well, all right, if you're going to force me, then I'll do it. This was out of nowhere. And I said, force you to do what, Brian? And he said, to put Surf's Up on the album. I had talked to him about putting the song Surf's Up on the next album, which at that time was tentatively titled Landlocked. And this was the first album with which I would have had an association. And I said, you, you mean you're really going to do it? And he said, well, if you're going to force me. <laughs> and it was a fantastic thing, and I loved it. And we got into Warner Brothers, and uh, with no coaxing at all, Brian said to Mo, well, I'm going to put Surf's Up on the album. And uh, I think this was something that helped us a great deal, really, because it did provide a commitment on Brian's part to become very active in the studio. And in my way of thinking, still, and I listen to a lot of records these days, there's some marvelous artists out there, but to my ears, there's still no one who can accomplish things in production as Brian can. Carl did a tremendous amount of work. Brian did some work on it as well. Uh, we did the entire track on the first section over again and then scrapped it because it didn't quite come up to the original uh, track. Carl had to sing uh, the lead on the first portion of the record. Uh, he didn't want to, we wanted Brian to initially, and I think psychologically there was so much intensification that Brian was the only person who could sing that part that when Brian decided ultimately not to, it put Carl in a difficult position because he too was socked into that uh, myopic viewpoint as was Steve Desper, the engineer of the Beach Boys, and uh, was I, that it, that was Brian that had to sing that. 
But uh, I remember uh, Carl and I sat in the studio, which at that time was at Brian's house, for uh, oh, a couple of hours, one late afternoon, early evening, and Brian was somewhere else in the house, I don't know where, and Carl suddenly hit that high note that's uh, included in the first portion twice, in the first and second verse, and he really did it well. He read that lyric beautifully. And the lyric, which Van Dyke Parks put to the song, is uh, my favorite lyric of all time. I, I think it's uh, one that has to be read very carefully. A diamond necklace played the pawn, and a handsome grown the long walk to a handsome man in the town. A blind glass aristocracy, back through the opera glass you see the pit in the is Brian from the original recording. Dove nested towers, the hour was strike the street, quicksilver moon. Carriage across the fog to step to lamplight cellar tune. The laughs come hard in Raised a fire and rose the fullness of the wine, the dim last toasting. While at port, a doom A choke of grief, heart hardened I, beyond belief, a broken man too tough to cry. Surf's up, board a tidal wave. Come about hard and there's a really intense low synthesizer bass part on there. Um, yeah, it's, and we're not really sure who played it, right? Jack Riley said that Carl played it, and then Brian, and then yeah. Bruce said that Brian played it, and then Steve Desper said Steve Desper played it. So. Um, one of those three. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
there was another couple of lyrics that um, Brian and Jack Riley um, collaborated on that weren't recorded. And you can see there's, um, it goes around, there's um, Carl's handwritten lyrics that he wrote out for himself to sing. And Brian kind of scrawled some other stuff on the end when he came up with the, the extra parts. And there's another line that they didn't end up recording. The father's life is done and the children carry on. I'm glad they didn't use it, but it's quite cool to know that it exists. They also did a percussion overdub, is that correct? There's um, right, a shaker there's, in the face. There's a shaker. And yeah. There's also um, a Hammond organ over the first half of the song that was the only thing oh, added okay. to that part, which was played by um, either Carl or Bruce, probably Carl. Um, and I really love that part. It just kind of gives the whole track a sort of like floaty kind of shimmer. I, I think it's really nice, and I wish they'd included it in the um, 2011 mix. Because you know they had Hammond organs in 1966, <laughs> you know it could have it could have happened. Um, I, really, I really miss that part. I think it sounds great. Someone asked for the Q and A thingy if Marilyn sang the bygone part. Uh, no, it's actually Carl who then yeah. sang it again, doing a sort of whisper. Because according to um, Steve Desper, the engineer said that Carl was kind of worried about his voice taking up too much of you know sort of dominating the song and it being too obvious that it's just Carl singing the lead and then backing vocals, just Carl and everything. So he suggested Carl sing over it again with a whisper and that's what the bygone sound is it's a really really cool sound i love that bygone, bygone. a blind glass aristocracy back through the opera glass you see the pit and the pendulum most of the vocals for this because brian was really not not wanting to participate they were arranged by carl and bruce in the outro on the original track you just have brian kind of singing a descending melody um, so what they did at first was Bruce arranged some extra harmonies to add on top of that. Um, he's singing a falsetto higher than Brian and then Carl's singing a part below that. And then Dennis is singing like a bass vocal kind of on top of that. Um, there were a bunch of other parts added. So at some point, Brian decided to get involved last minute and came out, add more came to down his, in his pajamas. fade out. Yeah. Came down in his pajamas from his room and, one thing that they added was the new the new melody. I don't know if this was written in 1966 or whatever, but these new lyrics were apparently written by Jack Riley, yep. the children's song lyrics. And that is sung by Al. And then towards the end, you have Bruce is singing a harmony above that. And then you have, I think, Brian and Marilyn sing a part above that. Yeah, it sounds like a, it sounds like a female voice comes in and then Brian sort of kind of follows it i don't know if they're in unison or need the, need the multi-tracks for that really i can't can't tell but i'm I'm sure brian's definitely one of the one of the two people singing that final line um and th those extra harmonies at the end are really subtle it's that hard to notice at first but once you hear them you just latch onto them then the final portion the tag the child was the father of the man portion is something we all got involved in i know alan has a very important part in that carl sings a couple of parts michael I'm on it, a guy who worked for us part-time and Bill D. Simone sings on it. He just sings, hey, hey, but it's integral to the tag of that record. That was a lot of fun doing the tag, sir, so. There's tongue is love And the children know the
the last part that they added there is、uh, the child's father, the man vocals. So the rhythm here in the bass, the bass part that we were talking about, is very similar to the bass part in the child chorus. So I don't know if that's something that he did on purpose back at the time, but. Here he's repurposing some of those those vocals. He has Mike doing that low part. It's really cool. He has Carl singing the that one backing part, and then I think I think it's Bruce who does an, another、oh, extra yeah. falsetto. Bruce、part. does a sort of little da da about him. Yeah, and then there's a line that、um, that Jack Riley sings too.、Um, the that's why the child. Yeah, it kind of comes in at the end, and there's this backwards echo.、Uh, that's Jack Riley singing it, the manager. I always wondered who that was when I was when I was first listening to this song because it doesn't sound like any of the Beach Boys. Yeah, and there's, and, and there's a guy、um, who just goes "Hey, hey,"、uh, which was according to Jack,、um, Bill De Simone. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He was just an employee who worked for the Beach Boys at the time. Yeah, so that's nine nine voices on that fade singing. I think it's eleven different parts. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. It, it is really crazy. Yeah, if you Jack Riley sings on a a couple other things at the time, like he does the lead on "Day in the Life of a Tree." Yeah, he does some backing vocals on like the Trader, but and it's it's yeah, you can, you can tell all of all of the guys were kind of blown away by it as well. If you listen to the、um, the vocals only bootleg mix, you can hear at the end of it, Bruce kind of goes, "Holy mackerel!" Because <laughs> it's、yeah. just that impressive.、Um, it's yeah, it's crazy arrangement. Yeah, and it sounds like something that Brian totally could have done on his own, but it's really cool to know that it's it was kind of the rest of the Beach Boys salvaging this masterpiece that Brian refused to work on, and then Brian actually working on it last minute. Yeah, so so Bruce is、uh, Bruce is definitely kind of you know he did, he did a lot. He's he's kind of been an unsung hero for this song. He arranged most of the harmony stuff, but Brian, I think I think it I think it was Brian who kind of came up with all the child things at the end. So it's it's very、right. collaborative. I think a lot of it was kind of just done off the cuff. Everyone chipping in with their own ideas, and also,、um, so there are some other backing. There are, there are other backing parts in the rest of the song. There's、um, some harmonies on the the domino in the second chorus at the start, which are Bruce and Carl. Bruce sings this like stupid high.、Um, it's an A five, really really high part、yeah. above the above the high F domino. And then the the are you sleeping part, the harmony beneath Carl at the end is Brian. Are you sleeping? He actually came down from his room to sing that thing. And then there's that sort of ah harmony that goes into the second half of the song. Is、um, Bruce kind of in the middle, and then Mike below him, and then Dennis above, and then Carl above? So it's an unusual sort of stack if you're familiar with the way they normally stack harmonies with the different guys. That's that's a really nice part, and、um, Bruce is quoted in a few different places、um, about the way about this thing coming about, saying,、um, "I remember thinking, well, if I voice this chord in a Brian's part from the end of Carl's part, it will sound okay, and no one will know about it." And、um, he says we kind of ended up doing vocals to emulate ourselves without Brian Wilson, which was a bit silly. You know, they were sort of having to remember how to be the Beach Boys and sound like the Beach Boys,、um, but they did a great job. It feels like there's more going on instrumentally, but it's just so many vocal tracks. Oh yeah, it, just, it, it feels like there's like a wall of sound. It's just a wall of vocals going on at the end of this. Yeah, 
there's a lot of imagery that you know beginning with the with the jewelry and the in the percussion but like the opera and um i think steve was telling me that he thought that there might have been a tie-in to van dyke parks um performing at the metropolitan opera house in new york and the fact that they were sort of tearing down the old opera house and rebuilding it and that there could have been an influence from that um, never thought in the lyric (laughs) yeah um pretty amazing Mm. and um um frere jaca which is a you know a children's lullaby um that brian uses um i wanted to bring up the the use of it in paperback writer by the beatles because it's it was i think may of 1966 when paperback writer came out Mm. and they sing um frere jaca in the backing vocals it's a thousand pages give or take a few i'll be writing more in a week or two i could make it longer if you like to start i can change it around and i want to be a paperback and then writer. brian uses it just you know a few months later in surfs up um i wonder if there's any connection there because i know brian was really influenced by um a lot of what the Beatles were doing yeah. in 1966. So. <laughs> it's kind of a funny story. This is this is only semi-connected, but um, Derek yeah. Taylor was kind of talking about some of Brian's weird habits, and he said he was he was just be, constantly be like really sort of competitive. And he said when Paperback Rider came out, Brian was sort of playing it and then and talking to Derek, sort of smugly saying, "Is this good? Is this really good?" <laughs> like compared to what he was doing. So, um, so Brian heard Paperback Rider. He did. He didn't know about it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, but yeah. It's kind of fun to hear him acknowledge it and just be smug about how his own song was better. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, that just kind of harkens back to the whole idea of children's songs and that theme that he was working with. But also, like, I wanted to talk about the title being Surf's Up. You know, it's definitely got some relevance. It's all about this. The song's kind of about this sort of loss and return to innocence and going back to, to children, um, to sort of childhood and, and music and the beach and all these simple things. And, you know, Van Dyke always talks about the Beach Boys being this vehicle for a sort of like a more modern Americana sort of. So it's, 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 it, you know, brings the whole album together, really. It's, he's talking about, you know, in Heroes and Villains and Cabinets and it's all these kind of, you know, the, the origin of, of, of America and what it all means and, you know, everything that was happening at the time. And then it surfs up, it kind of goes back to, it's, it's sort of, Van Dyke was sort of using the Beach Boys as a vehicle to talk about this stuff. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's really interesting the way he kind of just, it was it was it was directly confronting all the image stuff that was going on at the time. Um, I think he, Van Dyke's also talked about how he got the title from. Um, they, he said he said that they I don't know if it's true or not, but he said that they'd written this song to everything apart from the lyrics in the last verse, and then Dennis came back from the Royal Albert Hall um, crying because they laughed at the English people laughed at them for wearing striped shirts. Right. Um, yeah. And then yeah. Van Dyke was like, "Okay, we'll call this song Surfs Up.'" Um, I mean, that's not true because the title existed in November and the Beach Boys were on tour after that in England. But, you know, maybe maybe they got laughed at on tour earlier in, in September or something. I don't know. I don't know where that could be, but how, if that's true or not. But Kind of the whole second movement is one of my favorite lyrics that Van Dyke wrote oh, yeah. um, because it is so, it does have that kind of duality. It has that come about hard and join the young and often spring you gave is just so powerful and it doesn't really matter you know what how you interpret that it's just a brilliant lyric 
And David Andalou said that you know he, he thought this this song was the perfect marriage of Brian Brian and Van Dyke, the one song where you know them his music and the lyrics perfectly came together. Yeah, and, and Brian I think said it's it's Brian's gone back and forth between saying it's the best thing they've done, and then he also goes, oh yeah, here's Village is the best thing. Um, I think they're both the best, the <laughs> both the best thing. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite part um, of the melody and the lyrics coming together is at the end when. The lyrics say, I heard the word wonderful thing, a children's song. Um, because before that, the chords are just kind of going back and forth between the same pattern and the melody is just the same thing repeating over and over again. Yeah. But then when those lyrics come in, it's almost like a rev- uh, like a revelation. And the melody rises and the chords completely change. And then it just goes into that tag, which is so just, good. Surf's up is good. And it's, it's all the references as well. Like, I mean, Van Dyke's known for his, like, his references and double entendres and puns everywhere, but oh, yeah. there's so many, you know, there's, there's references to, I don't know, the pit and the pendulum. There's the music mm-hmm. holocaustly bow, the music holocaustly bow, Wellaport, adieu or die, adieu or die, all that kind of thing. Old Lang Syne is in there. It's, yeah, it's, there's, there are so many things. Um, Every lyric, there's like every lyric. It's it's supposed to sound like two different things. It's um, this isn't lyrically as well, but um, you know, you, how are you talking about the children's song thing with Frere Jaca? Um, Brian put the Woody the Wood the Woody Woodpecker theme in there and the, with the trumpet for some reason. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, uh, that's great. <laughs> I don't have anything to say about that. I love that. So let's talk about you know what they did on the Smile Sessions mix for surfs up so on the smile sessions mix what they have is they've gotten rid of carl's lead for the most part and they did what they couldn't do in 1971 and they took brian's double track vocal from that december 66 version and put it on top but there are a couple lines like the first um canvas the town and brush the backdrop uh, Brian didn't originally sing there on that version. It was just kind of an instrumental little ending. So they took Carl's vocal from 71 and put it there. Oh, and the Are You Sleeping after that as well. Um, the Are You Sleeping part is Brian and Carl together um, on that line. What they did also is they used backing vocals from 1971. So all the vocals that aren't just Brian's lead are from the finished version on the Surf's Up album. But they didn't use any of the instrumental overdubs. Except they did time. use so the shaker. No... The shaker is in the fade, but very subtly. But they didn't use um, the moog or the organ. Right, right. And yeah, so what you're hearing there is basically an attempt to remake the 1971 version, um, but with Brian's vocal and with some of the some of the instruments removed. Yeah, so kind of if how it could have been if it had maybe been finished in 66, so a sort of more authentic, you know, without the synthesizer. Um, I wish they used the organ, yeah. but, you know. <laughs> so which version do you guys prefer? I like Brian singing it. Yeah. I wish I had I wish yeah. I had the, the Moog and I wish I had the organ, but I yeah. and I wish the mix was a little bit better. I think the stereo mix which is only on vinyl is a bit kind of narrow. Um let me let me add it um but um but I think, yeah i prefer brian singing it all the way through you know carl's version's great it's just the fact that it has to be brian i think with that song yeah yeah i think i was so used to hearing the carl version that was just you know the version of the song that i had that when i first heard the the brian one it was totally new and i i still i think i prefer the brian version 
if only for the way he sings um, the domino line. You know, Carl's is, Carl's, is, Carl's is good, but it's kind of, it's not very powerful. But the way Brian kind of just screeches mm. it, it's amazing. Like, then he soars yeah. up to that note. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Carl's sings it really soft, but Brian just kind of belts it out, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, I love Carl's version for sure, but I think what we have on the Smile Sessions box is the closest thing to what was intended in 1966 for Surf's Up. The diamond necklace played the pawn and a handsome drum to my walk to a handsome man at baton. Upline class aristocracy back through the opera glass you see the pit and the pendulum drum.
All right, so let's hear from our good buddy and contributor, Steve Bonilla. So many new things were happening in on, on this project, and I feel the, the roots of many of these songs go back. They go back to 1965 for Brian. He, first of all, he started staying at staying off the road and this gave him time to socialize to go to sessions to really check out other people's records and um, a chance for him to explore what he'd been hearing the previous year and uh, he came up with two new devices one was a new feel for the music at least for him and the other was a new way of um, playing these more complex chords. He'd been doing 11th chords, or let's say if it's a, a C chord and you have a D bass, you know, an 11th chord, let's say. He had been using those, but he had been using them um, in the turnaround of a song, like Don't Worry Baby, or even uh, This Car of Mine, what have you. But he wasn't using them in the beginning of a song. And uh, I think, you know, starting in 64, so you had those epic, real-building kind of songs like uh, The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore and Hurting Each Other, uh, You've Lost That Loving Feeling, especially just once in my life. A lot of them use these more complex chords, minor sevenths and elevenths, and some of them even started out with the, those chords and I think the big the big song for for one of those would have been my little red book I, I think on Brian's first iteration of good vibrations when he goes I hope it he's propelling the vocal into the chorus in the way that the last line of the verse from uh, My Little Red Book uh, propels it, propels the verse into the chorus of that song. And while I held them, all I did was to talk about you. Hear your name and I start to cry. There's just no getting over you. Several songs on Smile use these two chord vamps. So some of them are very obvious, bump, 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 and some are drawn out over, over four bars. But still, you know, with a vamp, you can play over and over, and you can monkey with the feels of it, or you can change around what the chords are, and you can settle in on, on a groove that you can start singing over. You get a little melody on top of that, and maybe you repeat it, and then, and you repeat it again, and then maybe, okay, I'm going to go to this next chord, or this next note, and do a progression. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a good place to be, to get rhythm and to get a, a groove going and uh, put your mind in a place where you can start to create a song. Using alternate bass chords on vamps uh, can get you even more more things going and Brian really did this in with the the minor seventh chords of using thirds or sevenths or 
other notes as 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 the for the bass note and so it, it led him into new territories and also it gave him new new feel new feels for chord progressions he starts you know one of the first songs he did that on was caroline no So some people think of this this chord as a major as a sixth chord, and I don't see it that way. I see it as a minor seventh, and you're you're not playing the root, you're playing the third. And the second chord is a minor seventh, and you're playing the seventh. It's it's I don't look at it as a sixth chord, an F six chord, let's say. So Brian starts to use these more complex chords in the front of the song, and he starts using these chords in pairs, uh, you know, two, two chord um, little combinations. And um, that starts with Let Him Run Wild. And then it, that same sort of feeling brings you up to Surf's Up. Brian had a kind of a simple way to come up with these uh, unusual chord changes. A lot of times, especially during Smile, uh, he was playing his right hand was playing simple uh, inversions of chords, oftentimes just uh, triads. And the left hand was the one doing the heavy lifting on the, uh, on the harmony, you know, by altering the left, you know, what your left hand was playing under a triad could give you just such, you know, different feels, harmonic feels. Uh, so it's 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 interesting. He didn't use. He tended not to use clustery voicings with his piano playing. It was kind of spread out, you know, into triads in the right hand and simple, just bass notes in in the left hand. So the other thing that happened was this, what I call the quarter note uh, swing. And, uh, and what the quarter note swing, what I mean by that is what you get on a couple of those big, big Supreme records, like um, Where Did Our Love Go? And the quarter note swing, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that there's not little shuffle beats in there or triplets. I mean, there can be a lot of stuff going on, syncopation, but the primary feel is quarter notes. And you get that in Childish Father of the Man, you get it in Surf's Up, you even get it on the workshop section, you know, with the, the little chords that are being played uh, on holidays, on the second section of Love to Say Dada. Uh, it's it's in a few spots, and 
it it was something that was developing and he he really got he was really to starting to get sophisticated with it oh the other thing i thought was um the opening chord to uh, hard day's night I think those epic songs and My Little Red Book and those Supremes records and, and other Motown records were using that rhythm really did it for him. You know, there there may have been other what I call quarter note swing songs that came before the Supremes, but I think it was the Supremes and their their huge, huge hits that really had an effect on Brian. Surf's Up was a, a great artistic achievement. It's a masterpiece. His magnum opus? I don't know, maybe. But I wonder how it would have fared as a single, even later in 1971. I think of MacArthur Park. As long, drawn out, and ambitious as that single was, it had a recurring chorus. And I think that's, that, was, that was the payoff for that song. Great stuff from Steve, as always. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, man, Surf's Up. Surf's Up is good. Uh, the smile version is probably my favorite, but man, I really do love the way Carl sings it on Surf's Up, the album. And as well, when Carl did it live in the 70s too, um, the way he sang this, the whole second half of the song was great. I think even better than the first half of the song. It just was a perfect fit for his voice. My brother Carl is going to sing a song from the Surf's Up album, and it's the title song. It's called Surf's Up. <laughs> One, two, three. A diamond necklace played the palm Hand in hand some drummed along Oh, two hands man in the tongue A blind glass aristocracy Back through the opera glass You see the pin and the pendulum Taking me, dim chandelier awaken me to a song dissolved in the dark. The music hall a costly bow, the music hall is lost for now to muted trumpet is Towers, the hour will strike the street, quicksilver moon. Carriage across the fog to step to lamplight cellar two. The maps come rotting Raise the fire, grows the fullness of the wine, the dim last toasting. While 
look of grief, heart hardened I beyond belief a broken man to turn to cry serves up about heart and joy the young and often spring again I heard the word wonderful thing a children's song It's a perfect blend of, of what they were trying to accomplish on Smile, in my opinion. Like mm. the music and lyrics, and then the themes and the alliterate, the acid alliteration, the literal <laughs> lateral, all those things come together on this song. The Western, oh, yeah. the children, uh, uh, the spirituality. I mean, it's just, it's got it all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it might. It's listening to songs like this where you wish that Brian kept his collaborators around for a little longer <laughs> because they really only wrote like seven or eight songs together at the time. On Surf's Up, what were you feeling when you wrote the music? Do you know? I was feeling some love, a little bit of love, and I felt like you, you were, yes. you were there, and uh, I just felt some love. Yeah. I felt a whole lot of love. Well, it shows. A very, you know, it's just very romantic music. There's a, lot, a whole lot of love going on at that time. Yes. All right, guys, so I'm going to put you to task here. I reached out to everybody on social media and told them to ask some questions regarding the smile sessions but um and i got a lot of a lot of questions but first off i wanted to ask a question that's not smile related but it's from our very own will c who does our music and um you gotta you gotta appease you gotta appease will c whenever he asks a question so he says i've always loved the bell chime instrument in solar system in fact, I've always been mesmerized by some of the timbres of bell and chime sounding instruments on Beach Boys tracks. Then there's the ones on Be Here in the Morning, and of course, Morning Christmas. Do you have any insight as to what instruments are being used to create that metallic bell chime type sound on those tracks? Yeah, so um, the instrument in Solar System is actually the same one in those other two songs as well. Um, they're called tubular bells. Um, 
I played them in high school. Uh, a lot of people just call them chimes as well. Uh, there's these these big vertical bells that you hit with this mallet that's a wooden hammer, pretty much. Um, and Brian used them as well on one of the sections of Heroes and Villains um, that we'll talk about later, but he played them on that, and he played them also himself on Solar System, which I think is pretty cool. But yeah, really cool instrument there. That's awesome. So there you go, Will. Um, next up, I went to Facebook. So we have a question from Patrick Miller. He says, now that we have an officially released series of studio content, the Smile box set, do you all feel that Brian Wilson's Presents Smile was a reasonable stab at what might have been based on the assets the Brian Wilson band had at the time? When I heard the transition from Wonderful to Song for Children to Child is Father of the Man to Surf's Up at the, at the RFH performances, I began to wonder if there were more connective elements that we hadn't heard that might bind things together even further. Uh, no. Um, Yeah, this is something we kind of already covered in the first episode. It's that um, in 2004, they weren't trying to recreate what the album would have been. It was just to perform it live in a way that flowed. And that kind of became more legitimate when Van Dyke came on board and started writing some new lyrics. And then they legitimized it even more by doing a studio version. Um, But no, that's in 1967 or 66. It was just an album of 12 songs. I mean, those songs were put together in a modular way, but there weren't going to be transitions between the songs. And um, the 2004 version, the way it does, the way it does that is cool, but it's not representative of what would have been in the 60s. That was kind of very. That was sort of Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road, uh, Dark Side of the Moon esque influenced, um, kind of retroactive way of doing things, which. It's fine for that version, but it's not representative of what would have been to answer the question. So, no. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a fun way to put the album together, and it makes for a really good live show, for yeah. sure. Okay, Ewan McDonald says, Since the bootleg days, I've been fascinated by the Rock With Me Henry variant of Wonderful. I remember getting it off Napster and being so confused, but also loving it. Later, it made a welcome appearance on the box set. But how did it come about? And how is this almost doo-wop track so vastly different from the Smiley Smile version and so different from the version most people are familiar with as a Smile track? Yeah, so that version's really weird. Um, he did that in January 67, um, and it was around the same time that he was doing um, other songs like Teeter Totter Love. So I don't really know why he did it, but... It also feels like he was just kind of procrastinating, working on um, Heroes and Villains at the time. Um, right. But yeah, that one was recorded after the, the main Smile version that we're all familiar with, and before the Smiley Smile version. And then there's another one that we'll talk about as well. But yeah, that one's just Brian and Carl in the studio with some musicians. Um, they're the only ones that sing on that track, and it just seems like... You know, Carl never finished his lead vocal there. They never really came back to it. It's just a really weird anomaly here. And yeah, so short answer, I'm not really sure <laughs> yeah. why they did that. I don't think they were that sure either. So, <laughs> um, okay, yeah, next up we got a question from Chuck Hayes. 
I need an hour-by-hour hour breakdown of the late-night visit to 93KHJ, including number of limos, personnel, party favors, and map quest route to debut heroes and villains. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, obviously you meant this as a joke, but I can actually kind of help you out a bit, because I'm just that kind of guy. Um, uh, we've got a date for when that happened. It was July 5th, 1967. If it, for anybody who doesn't know this story, in uh, 1971, Terry Marcher kind of told the story of how Brian was holding on to the Heroes and Villains single and his astrologer um, told him now is the time you've got to go and premiere it and he went up to KHJ and um, to kind of give them an exclusive preview of the song and then one of the DJs kind of like refused to play it for a minute and had to be told like to you know it's Brian Wilson he's got a new song just let him play it and then like Brian was kind of just destroyed by that experience or whatever and it's it's a weird you know people there was a thread on the Smiley Smile message board years ago that went on for like 20 pages of people trying to figure out like which disc jockey would have been on station at the time and stuff and yeah so so we've got a date for from um carl engerman i think is uh how you pronounce his name the capital guy who said that it was on the july 5th which is the day they'd also been working on she's gone bald so you know brian was doing some brian was singing about um someone going bald and then his astrologer called him up and was like hey now is the time and he rushed over with a, a big entourage to <laughs> do this big premiere. Um, Steve Desper said that um, they had a, Brian had a big Rolls Royce that he didn't drive a lot. He was just to kind of show off, and he had his lawnmower in the back of the car that he had to take out to put people in there. Um, and it was the only one used because it was the only car that Brian owned and was at the house. Um, and he said that it was a last-minute thing, and to have a caravan of limos would have taken hours to arrange. And um, <laughs> basically, at first, they couldn't even get through the gate because they just kind of showed up in the middle of the night uninvited. Um, I have to check. I think Dennis had a, a big car as well, so that maybe gave Terry Meltzer the impression that there were some limos, but they weren't. It was just a couple of big cars. Um, and the people there, um, Steve Desper went along, Brian and his wife, um, and Mar and uh, Diane went along, Terry Meltzer obviously, um, Carl and Al, and probably, probably some of the other Beach Boys. Al sort of talked about this as well. The problem I don't think was that one of the DJs refused to play it. Um, I think it was that Brian put it on the air and nobody really kind of, it didn't really have a sonic punch because they, you know, recorded it at the house and mastered it in a certain way and Brian was just really disappointed by the reception it had and it didn't do too well. And um, then Terry kind of blew it out of proportion and turned it into a legendary story in 71 when you talked about that, but yeah. <laughs> well, Chuck, I don't know if you expected an answer, but there you go, buddy. <laughs> Above and beyond here. Um, next is from Shane Bramley. What's the complete and utter unequivocal answer to when the fire session filming took place? You know, the one with Brian, Carl, and Mike. Al, too? Some say it's from Dennis's collection. This looks more like a mixing session than a recording session. If so, what would be the date of this piece of film? Uh, John, you can start. Will, you want to take this one? No, you can start oh, I'll this. Start. And, you okay. can start this soon. If you say something wrong, I'll, I'll just, you know. <laughs> All right. So this is actually a session at um, at Western, uh, which is people would think it's a it's a vocal session because it's got all the Beach Boys there, and you don't see any other musicians, um, and they're all wearing the fire hats. So for a long time, everyone assumed like that this is just the Beach Boys at the fire session, but. That was recorded at Gold Star. So what's actually going on here is there's a session that happened two days after the fire session at Western that had Brian, Carl, Dennis, Mike, and Al. 
Yeah, I just um, it was it was a session logged as five Beach Boys, and Bruce isn't seen in the footage, and Dennis is the one right. holding the camera. So that's how we yeah, and that's yeah. So that fits the numbers exactly. Then. And we broke down the uh, the My Only Sunshine vocal arrangement because that's what they were recording that day. They were doing the vocals for that track, um, and it has all five of those guys on it and no Bruce. So we think that that's what the session was. So November thirtieth, nineteen sixty six. Five of the guys recording vocals for My Only Sunshine, and since it was two days after the fire session, um, you know they still had all the fire helmets laying around. So, you know why not? Um, and since that was like the first day back from their tour, um, there's a chance that he was probably playing them all the new stuff. So, you know maybe he had them with the fire helmets to get them in the mood to show them the fire track he was working on. And the other thing as well is we know it's definitely from after their European tour because Carl's reading a German magazine, a music magazine that he would have picked up in in November.、Um, so it was definitely, it's definitely after tour, and that that session at Weston is really the only one anywhere and anywhere like near the ballpark that fits the criteria. So we're pretty like right ninety ninety four percent confident that that's that's the one November thirtieth. Yeah, unless there was a. Completely、yeah. undocumented session at Western、yeah. featuring all of them, and Dennis Van- is not there, by the way, because he's holding the camera. Yeah, and Van Dyke Parks was there as well. He's not in、um, some of the edits in like American Band. You don't see him, but he was.、Um, there's some other footage from elsewhere where you see Van Dyke was in the studio. It's pretty cool. Yeah, detective. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Next up from Justin Plank. What's up, Justin? How close were we to getting "Do You Like Worms" on the Light album? Are there any bits of Little Pad actually from Smile? Yeah. So in late 1978, Bruce Johnston was interviewed about、uh, the Light album, and he said that、um, so he was asked about the Smile stuff, and Bruce said he's decided he's going to wait until Brian would really give his permission to do it. Gussie、um, wants to open the album with、uh, Rock Plymouth Rock Roll and end it with Been Way Too Long. I wanted to make up a collage, but I want Brian to be the one to put the collage together. I can tell he still feels funny about that stuff.、Um, you know, there are, there's a lot of smiles still intact. So basically,、uh, James Gershio wanted to put、um, "Do You Like Worms" and "Can't Wait Too Long" on the Light album, which would have been absolutely insane, and it didn't happen. <laughs> but I don't think it went very far. <laughs> They didn't do any work on it. It was kind of just a, you know, Bruce just kind of said, "Well, I'd want Brian to say yes to it. I don't want to push it on without his permission." And obviously, Brian would not have said yes, so that didn't go anywhere. Oh, that would have been mental. <laughs> yeah, that's insane. I want a version of the Light album that goes from like "Do You Like Worms" into "Lady Linda." <laughs>、um, so the next one are any bits of Little Pad actually from Smile? No. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> This is from David Ghosty Wills. Since Capital followed the Brian Wilson Presents Smile template. Why didn't anyone suggest having Al or Bruce, the two most youthful-sounding members, put lead vocals on the tracks that needed them? Yeah, so I think what they were trying to do with the Smile Sessions release in 2011 was just give us the full recordings from the 60s, just completely, you know, raw and on their own. And Bruce actually talked about this even before Brian Wilson presents Smile. He gave an interview where he was talking about Smile. And he mentioned that if Brian ever did it, that he and 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 Al and Mike would would not want to be a part of it because he said that the vocal blend just wouldn't be the same without Carl and Dennis. So、um, I don't think they were approached for Brian Wilson presents Smile, and definitely not for the Smile sessions. But 
I know that's that's a reason why he said that he wouldn't want to do something like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm glad they didn't do that. It's kind of sad that of all the of all the things that, it's it's really just do you like worms where we we know lyrics and a melody existed, but it wasn't recorded in the '60s, um, and it's it's yeah. a shame. But at the same time, I don't think I'd want kind of old Beach Boys on there. Um, I think it's just leave it as is, and then this is 2004 version, um, 2004 vocals if. You want to sort of add those to your own thing, uh, but I, I don't think it, I think it's for the best that they didn't try and record any new stuff for it. Would have been cool if they did it for the light album, though. Oh yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that would have been great. A couple, couple of them still sounded good. <laughs> It'd be jarring if like Brian's scratchy voice was on there. <laughs> All right, so this next one is from Dave Steffick. How many tracks on the Beach Boys Smile release was Tommy Tedesco on? Yeah, so. He plays on Cabin Essence. He plays that um, weird bazooki instrument we were talking about, I think, last episode. And then he also plays a mandolin on the cantina section of Heroes and Villains um, right before you're under arrest. Um, and I, that's it, actually. Yeah, it's just yeah. those two songs. <laughs> yeah, Tommy's one of the most well-known members of the of the Wrecking Crew. He's one of the really recognizable names. But you didn't do a whole lot for Brian. He, um, not even not even on Pet Sounds. I think on that album, the only thing he's on is on the title track, playing the acoustic guitar. Um, I think he's more on some of today and summer days. But Tommy didn't really work with Brian a whole lot. He's only on a few sessions. All right. Next is from Paul Harvey. Good evening. Why wasn't the vocal round that was featured on the run out of the Smiley Smile version of Wind Chimes used on the Smile version of Wind Chimes? Or was that purely a Smiley Smile version? Thank you. Looking forward to the next episode. Uh, yeah, so that part wasn't on the Smile version because that's just not a piece of music that he had for the song. It was just completely different. And um, that was pretty much the fade out to Holidays at the time. So it was only much later that he decided to take the ending of Holidays and repurpose that as the wind chimes fade. So on the 2011 uh, Smile Sessions, on the first CD, what they did was they took the vocals from the Smiley Smile fade out of wind chimes and put that over the Holidays track and kind of used that as a transition. Um, but yeah, that's just Brian taking two different ideas from two different songs and putting it together later. From High Dive, number one, what precise date do you think the Smile Project ended and Smiley Smile began? So we kind of touched on this on the first episode, too. Yeah, this is, um, um, I could go on about this all day. <laughs> yeah. It's one, one of those things where there isn't a concrete date, but there is a kind of a series, there's like kind of a ladder of dates, like a whole load of different milestones where you could decide um, which one you think it is. You know, there's either... Um, you know, after 1st or 2nd of March, where Brian stood away from the studio for quite a long time, and he was, you know, the lawsuit happened, Van Dyke Parks left, um, and then there's after the April sessions, where uh, Brian took another break from the studio, and then Smile was officially announced cancelled in the press by Derek Taylor, and there's after the, um, the one that I definitely don't think it was, is May 19th, um, when Brian cancelled a session for Love to Say Dada. I don't think that was a marker of anything because Smile had already officially been cancelled and nothing really changed in the status quo of the waves that he was recording immediately afterwards. It was just, you know, um, he went in the studio in June recording with the guys again, but it was, wasn't was really different. He was still at Weston, still in that studio environment. Um, 
no different really to a lot of the vegetables and heroes and villains stuff that you've been doing with just the guys and in a sort of quite minimalist style. And then after that, the next date you could have is June 11th and 12th when Brian moved his stuff into the home studio um, and started kind of recording in a new way, in a new way. But even then, it's still kind of loose ends from um, the Smile era. You know, he's finishing heroes and villains using the same pieces and recording and you know, the music still sounds like Smile, it's just in, recorded in Brian's house. And then the next date that I think it could be is June 15th when he does a new version of Vegetables. He has his detuned piano um, and his Baldwin organ and just him playing bass on it. And then he decides to strip it down even more and just have himself playing bass as the backing track. And it's kind of a, an epiphany where he realizes this can be the way he makes music now, just this simple, like, you know. But it, again, it's still loose ends from the smile sessions um it's still used as parts of the april version in in that version of vegetables it's still tying up loose ends so i think the final day where you could say this is definitely smiley smile now smile is definitely over is june 19th where the monterey pop festivals happened and brian starts recording little pat and possibly also she's going bored at the same time um it's, it's a completely new song it's you know, he's recording in that home studio style. There's no more loose ends. This is completely new material for a new album that it's not going to be Smile anymore. It's something a bit different. And from then on, it's quite consistent recording through the next few weeks until it's until it's all done. So I think that's, you know, it's kind of a ladder of different dates where you could say it's over here. But and, until you get to that final one where I think that's the final milestone. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> I found an article recently uh, from LA Times from June 16th. 1967 and they had they were talking about the new single heroes and villains and they mentioned the album title smiley smile so the title was around i didn't know that that that's interesting yeah it was it was was when i got that like (laughs) that short uh subscription just for that one article so so yeah that the title was around around the time that you said the last you know kind of turnaround moment was um, day before the Monterey Pop Festival. All right, there it is. The other part was "Look, I Ran" or "Song for Children." Um, this is just a yeah. This is a, a song title thing. I I tend to think "Look" is the most reliable original title because that was um, it was untitled on the "I Ran" comes from the AFM contract. And AFM contracts are just you know they're a piece of paper d- designed to get musicians paid. They're not the best market to go off for these sorts of things. And there's inconsistencies, you know. There was a, one of the trousers, Father of the Man sessions we talked about today was accidentally put down as a cabinescent session. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of mistakes can go on there. And I, I think, yeah, look is what was written on the tape box. So that's what I go off for the title of the song. And Song for Children is um, something that came about in late 2003, sort of consciously drawing on the on the Surf's Up connection. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I just call it Look. I think that's, that's good enough as a title. <laughs> Um, All right. Well, thanks very much, Will. And thanks very much, John, for joining me and for putting in all this work and answering these questions. All right. So I'll talk to you guys next time. Awesome. Bye.
All right. Thank you guys for sticking with me. You've made it to the end. This has been a really fun episode to put together. I'm really appreciative for all you guys supporting us, especially over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash sale on. It keeps the show advertisement free and there's a ton of bonus content. So if you're interested, please go check it out. I want to say a shout out to our new patrons, Dawson, Matt Collier, Britton Boyd, Byron Wilkes, Ian Hayslop, Drew Bayers, Alex Marr. Thank you guys so much for your support. It really does help and it really keeps the show running advertisement free. We love you. Thanks to Steve Bonilla, as always, for the great insight. To Will C for the great music. And to Will Crera and John Brody for coming along with me. I really can't do it without you guys. I'm really appreciative. So send me an email if you have thoughts. Sailonpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us a voicemail at 615-606-3887. All right. Until next time, sail on, sailors.